0: Murray Ohoka's exhibition, Tail Ends and Eternal Wakes, opened at Temple Bar Gallery and Studios on February 27, 2020. The paintings in the exhibition depict animals from the displays of Dublin's Natural History Museum, known locally as the Dead Zoo. In this conversation, Ohoka speaks with Nigel Monaghan, the keeper of the Natural History Museum, about some of the many fascinating historic stories and collections that the museum holds as well as its contemporary relevance to the study of the natural world.
1: Nigel, we met in your office at the Dead Zoo on the 6th of March of this year, For the world as we knew it stopped. I had a set of questions which follow a general interest to have in the Dead Zoo and your experiences as Keeper of the Museum. It seems the local and global have collided in quite an unprecedented way. Wet markets in Wuhan, China, have provoked bear markets as far away as New York. The COVID-19 virus is having an impact, which is forcing everyone to stop and think. And no one knows for sure, but there is consensus it all started with the virus passing from the animal kingdom into humans. So I'd like to start in a different place within this state of emergency brought on by COVID-19. There's been a lot of confusion and poor knowledge in the fake news surrounding this pandemic. It's evident in how political leadership has responded and also within the public in general. Do you think there could be a better way of teaching science to school children and also in academia so that politicians as well as the general public can make better sense of how the natural world and human behavior impact on each other? For instance, should science be a mandatory subject like maths and English?
0: It should certainly be a core subject. I think you're Always going to have problems with politicians and the way that they have to work in their universe. And it's a bit like parenthood. You can go and study it, but you don't have to know anything about it to get snagged up in it. There's no formal qualification. So it really matters when you get people who have no scientific background and Mm -hmm. no understanding of where to put pieces of science and how to analyze it, which is even more important. So, particularly when you won't even listen to the scientists, it's more of a problem. (laughs) But I think that there's a lot that science can offer and it's been mm-hmm. doing it all along. It's just people haven't perhaps considered its importance and significance. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like economics. When we had an economic crash in 2008 and eight and nine. we all started to learn an awful lot about the subject very quickly. And there's a lot of people who know quite a bit about viruses now who knew nothing at all about them a year ago. But there is always that gap for spreading and diluting the clear messages in amongst all of the jungle of what people chatter about because they simply feel they have to fill the space or they're in a position of responsibility and they have to say something. And the cleverer people will turn to the experts at times like that. But we should all have that basic scientific knowledge. And that's been part of what the museum has been doing for over 160 years in its current form, is bringing science directly into the general public's sphere of understanding and exposure. And if you can imagine 160 years ago, there were relatively few books to pick up they were full of travelers' tales of daring do and scary monsters that lived in the oceans or lived in the jungles. And people's understanding wasn't great and they were easily led astray, but steadily the scientific method got into the way of coming up with answers and coming up with understanding of nature. I think hopefully we've moved on hugely since our museum was set up, but it's still a very important place to go physically and act as a talking point mm-hmm. and a prompt around these yeah. topics.
1: How to decolonise museums is a question which recurs frequently within cultural and scientific communities. The answer is often contested, but one obvious answer is to expand the labelling system surrounding the provenance of specimens, to just to facilitate historical accuracy and so on. I'm just wondering what is your position within this general debate?
0: Well, if I could start by saying that as with any debate, you need to clarify the parameters. And I think it's very important for people to understand that there's a big difference between what I call the Elgin marbles approach, where you see something that you consider is illegally taken from your country and your culture, and you really want it back. And that's a very clear message from people all over the world that they see the actual thing and they feel feel it should be physically relocated. The decolonization is much more subtle and complex. And in natural history museums, we're well aware that our animals and our geological specimens and other scientific materials materials in our collections have literally come from all over the world. They've come from areas with very, very little occupation at all, and they've come from areas with very dense populations and rich cultures going back millennia. But the reality is that most of them, in our particular museum sense, were collected honestly and for their time, many of them, but not all of them, ethically. We would do things very differently today, and we would have very different protocols in place. There's a protocol called the Nagaya Protocol, based on a, on a international agreement that makes sure that you're not taking the DNA and the chemistry of things from the wild in countries and making lots of money out of them with pharmaceutical companies, for example, without there being a trade-off back to the host country and the host peoples where that started out. So that's a very different cultural approach to going out into the wild, which is usually already populated by somebody else, in various parts of the British Empire in our case, shooting an animal as a big game challenge and ending up with a stuffed hippopotamus or a rhinoceros in a museum. And it's not just the big objects. For example, one Irish guy who was the director of the Geological Survey in India, one of his hobbies was shooting and collecting birds. And he added at least 3,000 birds to our museum collections. Now, nobody else at the time would probably have bothered to collect those birds in the wild and add them to a museum collection. But they remain as a really useful resource. So what we can do to sort of pay back more of a conscience than a a legal obligation, as it might be with, with sort of stolen treasures, is to get the information from those objects that we have in our museum collections and make them available internationally, put them up online, send blocks of data to scientists working in those countries to help them understand their own wildlife using resources that might now be on the other side of the world.
1: I guess there are other examples of specimens within your collection that give some perspective in terms of how they were acquired. And I'm thinking of the lion's head, for instance, and the famous hunt, which struck me when I was in the museum myself. And actually, it's the subject of one of my drawings in the show. You told me a story about how the hunt unfolded. And perhaps there isn't space on the labelling in the museum, but I think people might be interested in how that hunt has connections with the provenance of that particular lion's head.
0: Yes, well, we have quite a lot of hunting trophies in the museum as a whole. The one with the best provenance that we can track back was a tiger shot in Nepal in 1911 by King George V. And the whole reason for his visit to Nepal was that he was becoming King of England and he was now heading off to be crowned as Emperor of India, which is one of the other major titles, certainly, of the British royalty at that time. And in order to welcome him, they organized Organised a substantial hunt over a period of a couple of weeks. And they killed at least 60 tigers and rhinos in a period of just 10 days. And there were even postcards produced to celebrate the fact at the time. And our tiger may well be identifiable in one of those photographs. But obviously, that is what people can do in the wild in a short period of time. If you've got the support of the local Maharajas getting their people to drive wildlife towards. Towards you through a forest at the scale where you can actually get that many tigers swept in front of a hunting party so that from the back of elephants they can then shoot at bears and tigers and rhinos in particular that then end up as pieces of taxidermy and gifts to museums like ours because in 1913 when that arrived in dublin From the king's taxidermist appointed by the crown in London, we got that tiger when we were still part of the United Kingdom. And that's one of the things that I find fascinating about our museum is how it brings together different periods of history and a huge social context and a very different attitude to wildlife. And it can be used to broadcast ideas and talk around some of the things that really matter in today's wildlife conservation.
1: You talk about 1913, which brings me back to that period in history. And since the founding of the state in the last century, there's been an apparent and well-documented privileging of archaeology over natural science in this country. Not surprisingly, archaeology was instrumental in establishing and reinscribing national identity in new ways, for example, through excavated artifacts like chalices and own stones, and as evidence of a sophisticated or ancient Celtic civilization. So, what ways do you think the Natural History Museum lost out to archaeology, and why in this state sponsored way?
0: There was a big growing surge of science in the 19th century. And when the museum that's on Kildare Street today was constructed and established, it was built as a museum of science and art. And it was designed to be a national museum with a bit of everything in it. And it certainly had archaeology, mainly coming from the Royal Irish Academy collections, because they had been the agency accumulating archaeological collections. And that Kildare Street Museum also housed ethnographical material from around the globe decorative arts, historical material, and some people will even remember that diversity of display up until the 1980s. But one of the things that was happening in the early part of the 20th century in particular was what had started as a Celtic revival and and a resurgence of Irish identity. It grew, as we all know, into a political movement that changed the course of history, and we ended up with a new free state in the 26 counties. And most parochially within the museum, the director of the museum had to resign because it was his son, Joseph Mary Plunkett, one of the 1916 executed that had effectively disgraced him as a public servant in what was still the United Kingdom's public service. So it came very close and personal into the National Museum for individuals, but also the National Museum was trying to establish a national identity. And of course, by the 1920s, when you are the free state and you're choosing your national identity, one of the places to look is to your ancient identity before you had a colony arrangement with your neighbours where you were, depending on your point of view, brought great success and science and investment or was an oppressive power. But archaeology gave you a safe piece of ancient history when Ireland was great once before. And citing that your country is great can be actually quite a problem. On a local level in the museum, the effect was to make archaeology the and Kingpin and they appointed a director from Germany um, specifically with that in mind. And he was there through the 1930s until the Second World War. And that was a deliberate focus by the director was to make it an archeological institute. It went way beyond being just a museum where archeology span dominated. It was the center of archeology span in the country. And he saw that that is what was very important from a nationalistic perspective. And that held sway even well after the war that it took quite a long time before there was a balancing out between the various departments in terms of the resources applied to them and the space available for them to exhibit their collections. The biggest effect for natural history was to be bypassed when I started in the 1980s, referred to by my predecessor as the Cinderella Division. But as another member of staff reminded him, Cinderella actually went to the ball at one point. So natural history is very much bypassed. And that is why it looks like a museum of the 1910s or 20s, because so little changed in all of that time, whereas many things around, certainly even just in the museum sphere, changed significantly.
1: So the idea that nature can be contained and ordered is a legacy of Enlightenment thinking in Europe. And Early natural history museums were designed to accommodate vast numbers of specimens, all labelled according to Carl Innes binomial Latin model. This extensive undertaking of naming every living species circulated another type of colonisation, that of language. Indigenous peoples have always named the flora and fauna of their own habitats, through oral traditions, if not always through written text. And while not according to a taxonomy, they have their own ways of naming flora and fauna. Is there evidence of any indigenous Irish species that hold traces of the Irish language in their labelling, even if framed by the Linnaean system?
0: Certainly the desire to structure an organise nature was really strong, and it still is. We now, since Darwin started to articulate it clearly in the middle of the 19th century, we have a much better understanding of why there is a natural underlying pattern to nature, because things in biology are naturally related to each other as descendants of common ancestors. So we have branching family trees, and we use still uh, that more than 200-year-old system set up by Linnaeus in the 1750s to structure and organize. And when you went to other countries and people had local names for animals, take something like our thylacine in the museum, that's what I would call it. It has a scientific name as well. It's from Tasmania. People call them tigers because they were stripy. But in fact, they're not remotely related to most other carnivores. They're certainly not related to cats at all. And if you ask the local Palawa people in Tasmania over a hundred years ago, what would they call it? They might call it Corina, Lowerina, Launan or Lagunta in their local languages. So you sometimes find a single animal has multiple names in a local language. One of the poverties in Ireland is that we have perhaps 30,000 different species of animals and plant. A great many of those have never had a name in the Irish language or even in the vernacular English. So it means that the best way that you're going to see a lot of species named is in the scientific form where people often don't recognize the influence of the other languages. And you will find that if somebody's naming a species today, they'll typically name it after a place. So you will see Irish place names turning up, and you'll certainly see Hibernica turning up quite a bit because you'll see things like there's a stoat in Ireland is slightly different to the Stoats in other parts of Europe, and it has its own name. And And it ends in Hibernica to note the fact that it is a distinct, discrete subspecies from Ireland. It's Mustella erminia hibernica. So that subspecies has been given a geographical place name. It's also very common that people would name things after scientists and people who've collected objects in the wild. And they often get credit through that form. But that's an element of the, the colonial thing as well is that the the person doing this is relatively new to that neighborhood. They're nearly always people who've traveled to go exploring and looking Mm. for things. So why would they know local languages or local place names? Nowadays, there's less excuse, but historically those names stick. Once something gets named, it gets frozen as a name and that is now the name of that species. People have changed considerably in recent decades, and you will see local languages and local tribal names for animals turning up in the scientific system. But most of the animal and plant diversity, which is enormous worldwide, is much broader than the local experience. So if I could put it in in perspective, there's about 400 different types of birds in Ireland. Nearly all of those will have an Irish language name. A number of Irish language names can be quite confusing and could refer to two or three three different scientific species of bird, because local people don't care hugely in detail about which warbler is warbling in the field. They might have a more generic name for the group. We don't have something that goes right down to species level, even for very familiar things day to day. When you get down to insects and invertebrates generally. There are tens of thousands of different species of those and very few have their own discrete, unique Irish language name. The same is even true in English language. I edit scientific journals and I work in that field. Many things don't have a common name in any language, simply because the only people who know about them are the scientific specialists and they are working with the scientific names.
1: I came across something with regard to naming of species and species have frequently been named by scientists in recognition of support and benefactors. For example, the genus Victoria is a flowering water plant and it was named in honour of Queen Victoria of Great Britain. More recently, a species of lemur, Avahi cleestii, was named after the actor John Cleese in recognition of his work to publicise the plight of lemurs in Madagascar. Is this a question of practice or acceptable in the eyes of the scientific community in recognition of philanthropic work they do?
0: It is quite widespread. It's also even interesting with John Cleese, because that's not his real name. It should be Cheese Eye, but he thought that wasn't funny enough. So he went with Cleese for some reason. But it is quite common for people to celebrate. And you will see things named after David Attenborough, of course, is probably the best known face of wildlife internationally. He has all sorts of things named after him at species level. The only rules in science are that you can't use a word that's been used already, so that you can't bring confusion into the universe of having two identical names for different species. And the other major stumbling block can be that you can't insult anybody in the giving of a name to something. It was a rather bizarre incident a couple of years ago when George Bush and his colleagues, Cheney and Rumsfeld, were very much in the news on a day-to-day basis. And an American entomologist named three little fungus gnats, tiny little flies that feed on mold after each of the three of them. And I thought, oh, that's a cheeky insult. I'm surprised that that was published. And apparently it wasn't an insult at all. It was actually just that that scientist worked in that group of animals, thought these three guys were amazing and wonderful human beings and great at their jobs, and named some of his new species after them. And I only realized that when I was actually having dinner with that guy. He'd come over to give a lecture in Dublin. And I thought, that was very funny. How did you get away with it? He said, no, no, they're wonderful people. And I thought, wow, I must pick my dinner. Our colleagues more carefully in future.
1: And they're scientists. There is a rise in interest in the natural sciences facilitated by wildlife programs on television and digital and open resource platforms. The Dead Zoo offers a different experience, a somewhat antique and curated context, yet also a multi-sensory and an immersive environment. It seems there are a range of senses stimulated by the visit to the museum, which can access the imagination of the visitor. And I'll speak for myself there. But what specifically do you think the museum offers to audiences that is not possible through wildlife programs and digital technologies.
0: Well, I think the people talk often about the fact that it's based on reality. And to an extent, it is a reality. It's not a clean reality and that you're not actually in the wild looking at animals in the wild. You're looking at preserved pieces of taxidermy that are basically artworks. And the thing that you do get in a museum context, in in our museum in particular, where there's a, a high density of exhibits and a lot of diversity of different animal types, is you can talk about scale. You're literally standing beside an animal. You can see how big it is. You can't get that close to those animals in the wild or in a zoo. They're often hiding in a zoo. Zoos have much less variation in their collections than museum collections would have. So you might find a a well-endowed zoo with a really good collection like Dublin Zoo would have less than 200 species of animals. We have 10,000 species on exhibition just in the public halls of the Natural History Museum. People want to be able to stand around and chat about things in that context. Our museum isn't one that tells you a storyline and puts a textbook and illustrates it with the stuffed animals in sequence through the pages of the textbook. It's one that people use to have conversations in and they bring that with them. And the one particular thing that our museum brings mostly to people, certainly for the regular Dublin visitors, it's a nostalgia visit. You might have been there with a grandparent showing you these animals for the first time and you find yourself there with your own children or grandchildren walking around an interior that hasn't changed since before you were born. Now, that's a very rare experience. Nobody's house is totally unchanged. And even though we make small changes here or there, people hardly ever notice them in our museum. So the nostalgia for all sorts of just the personal feeling of remembering back decades of your own life is quite significant.
1: I agree. Your interests are listed as Ice Age fauna, hyenas, woolly mammoths and brown bears from 35,000 years ago. And these seem to have links back to your early studies in geology. The leader of the Green Party, Eamon Ryan, is on record as having supported the idea of reintroducing the wolf after the species became extinct 250 years ago. What do you think of this idea?
0: Well, I think even the politicians worked out that they might just backtrack on that one fairly shortly after saying it because it's a lot more complicated than people think. And generally in a short answer, I would say not a chance. I really don't see the wolf returning to the Irish landscape wolves died out here around 300 years ago. They were deliberately hunted to extinction. They had a bounty on their heads. They were a threat to livestock. They were a threat to civilization. And it took Oliver Cromwell introducing a bounty Also, plantation settlers with firearms to finally be able to drive a medium sized mammal with a lot of skill and ability in the Irish landscape to extinction in our country. I don't think people are coping particularly well with reintroducing even the eagles that we have seen. We're still finding that there are farming interests that are causing problems for eagles by poisoning deliberately to kill eagles that they see are a threat to their livestock. The landscape has changed in the last hundred years since eagles were in the wild and even the golden eagles that don't seem to be persecuted in the northwest of the country so much are suffering from poor habitat just about making a living and they're still commuting backwards and forwards to Scotland to fly over very large distances to actually make a living as an animal in the wild. So there's a lot of challenges even if you all agreed as a society that you wanted to reintroduce wolves you'd have to change the landscape back and the farming practices back about 300 years and that's the kind a thing that is not going to happen.
1: I guess we can finish here. Thank you very much Nigel. I look forward to visiting the dead zoo again soon and hoping all your animals will be well out of quarantine by then.
0: You have been listening to artist Moredo Hoka talk with Nigel Monaghan, keeper of Dublin's Natural History Museum. For more about Moredo Hoka's exhibition at Temple Bar Gallery and Studios and to view an illustrated and expanded version of this conversation, visit templebargallery.com. Thank you for listening.